Well, good afternoon. Good to see you here at the EU. My name is Rowan Kemp. Let me lead us just in a prayer as we come to reflect on this fairly important topic together. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect together on what your word, the Christian Bible, has to say about this matter of abortion. We pray, Father, for uh, the mind to understand what we read and we pray, Father, for the courage to put our beliefs into practice. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Kate was 19. She and Vim had been together for nine months or so when, to her surprise and considerable shock, Kate discovered that she was pregnant. Kate talked to her best friend. The thought of having a baby was massive and at a level beyond comprehending. Kate's whole life literally was shifting in front of her as she tried to imagine the rest of her life as a mother. She could see that this actually wasn't about the next nine months or even about the next two years or five years. If you choose to be a mum, then you're a mum to that person for the rest of your life. She decided not to tell Vim about the pregnancy and she went for a termination. Terminating the pregnancy wasn't itself such a great experience. It was more invasive and distressing than Kate had imagined. Once it was over though, Kate did have a sense of relief that it was done and now she could move forward. But in a way that wasn't the end of it. Even months later, Kate sometimes felt quite uneasy about what had happened. It was particularly disconcerting when she saw a relative's newborn baby. She was just really upset by that, which she hadn't expected and didn't quite understand. Just sometimes she wondered about whether she'd done the right thing. But then, whenever she thought about it, what other option did she really have? We can't talk about abortion without realising that this is a massive personal issue. It is complex, it is deeply personal and for most it is never a decision that's taken lightly. What I'm going to try to do today is address this issue of abortion from a Christian point of view. I'm not assuming for a moment that everyone here is a Christian. In fact, I'm assuming that there's people here who are not, which is great. But what I'm going to try and do is put forward God's perspective on abortion as we glean it from the Christian Bible. Now, at the outset, I need to say that for some, it's particularly problematic when men like me get up and start speaking about an issue that affects women so directly. Lynn Allison was a federal senator and leader of the Democrats and speaking in Parliament just two years ago, this is what she said. It is galling listening to the men, and it is mostly men, who have such contempt for women who terminate unwanted pregnancies, who have neither the compassion nor the understanding of the huge and for many daunting task of taking an embryo the size of a grain of rice to adulthood. And then commenting uh, commenting a bit later to a newspaper, Senator Allison said this. She said, There are plenty of blokes around this place, namely Parliament, who don't understand why why women would do this. There are complex reasons why women need to make this decision. Now, we need to listen to what Senator Allison has said. If we, particularly as people who presume to speak as Christians to our community, if we lack compassion for those struggling with an unplanned pregnancy, then that is not the way of Jesus. 
And if we don't try to genuinely understand why women make various decisions, then that is not the way of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus is the way of love and love demands compassion and the attempt to understand. And further, what we must never do is have contempt for those who've had abortions. That is not the way of Jesus. Jesus was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Matthew chapter 11, Luke chapter 7. He didn't condemn those who were caught in sin. What he did instead was actually offer them divine forgiveness and yet still exhorted them to go and sin no more. And I'm thinking here of the way Jesus responded to the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 or the crippled man that Jesus healed in John chapter 5. Moreover, reflecting on Jesus' teaching, we'd better heed Jesus' own warning about those who are quick to condemn others but do nothing about the log sticking out of their own eye. Matthew chapter 7 or Luke chapter 6. Because the truth that the Bible teaches is that we will all stand before Jesus as our judge and the secrets of all our lives will be revealed to him. And we know that we'll all be found wanting and that we are all in need of grace. And that's me as much as anyone else in this room. But that's actually why the Christian gospel is such good news. Because exactly that grace that we need, that undeserved kindness from God, expressed in forgiveness, expressed in reconciliation with God, expressed in a new start from God, that grace is what is lavished on us in Jesus. So we actually head into this discussion of abortion humbly, aware of our own need for God's kindness and, I hope, determined to embody Jesus' own compassion seeking to understand the complex personal issues surrounding the question of abortion, but also not shying away from whatever God might have revealed to us in his word, the Christian Bible. Now that's sort of by way of entry to the issue. Now it's important that we talk about abortion, and by we I mean not just those in the room today, I mean our culture. It's really important that our society talk about abortion for three reasons. First of all, precisely because it is such a significant personal issue, as I hope Kate's story shows. Precisely because of the complexity and the impact of the decision at a personal level, it's important that we talk about it. Though second, it's important for us as a society to talk about abortion because our parliamentarians are talking about it. Currently there are abortion issues before both our federal parliament and the Victorian state parliament. In brief, in Victoria, what's known as the Abortion Law Reform Bill was passed by the Legislative Assembly on September 11 this year and it was to come before the Upper Legislative Council just two days ago, on Tuesday. Amongst other things, what this bill in Victoria will do, if put into law, is that it will remove abortion from the Crimes Act, it will decriminalise abortion up to 24 weeks, requiring only a woman's consent. That is to say, you compare that with New South Wales. In New South Wales, we don't have abortion on demand. Rather, a doctor needs to make a decision that this abortion is in the woman's best interest, but we'll come to that in a moment. But if this bill passes in Victoria, it will also permit abortion from 24 weeks right up to childbirth, provided that two doctors reasonably believe the abortion is appropriate having regard to the woman's relevant medical, current and future 
physical, psychological and social circumstances. Although it appears that the second doctor won't be required to actually talk to the woman in person but can presumably work off the case notes of the first doctor. That's in Victoria. Federally, Tasmanian Senator Guy Barnett has proposed a motion calling for the Senate to remove Medicare funding for abortions between 14 and 26 weeks. All the main political parties had previously agreed to allow members a conscience vote on this motion, but now with Barnett's agreement, the issue of Medicare funding for mid- and late-term abortions is going to be investigated by the Finance and Public Administration Committee. And according to one newspaper, both anti-abortion and pro-abortion campaigners believe the inquiry will turn into a de facto investigation into the numbers and costs of abortions in Australia. And the committee is to report by the end of the year and a parliamentary vote will follow. If successful, women will have to pay more for late and mid-term abortions because Medicare funding will no longer be available to them. My point's a simple one. Without commenting on the pros or cons of either proposal, if our elected representatives are debating the issues then we need to make sure that we, as those whom they are representing and on whose behalf they are making laws, that we are abreast of the issues that they are discussing and that we make our voices heard. We just have to resist the temptation to just let it all float on by and not care about the laws that are actually made in our country, which we will have to live by. To not care is to be socially irresponsible. So just as a little self-test... For you, do you know what the laws are in our own state of New South Wales about abortion? See, the, the fact that many of us have a personal view on abortion, whether it's right or wrong, but actually don't have much of an idea at all about what the laws of our own state are on the matter, I think that's actually symptomatic of a wide problem. As a culture, as a society, we are disengaged from our political and social context. We have been so enculturated with individualism that we actually don't engage in political discourse. We don't have really a political position on anything much. We don't even know the relevant laws under which we live. Let alone, and now I'm speaking, I guess, as a Christian to those who would claim to be Christians, let alone having a thought-out and articulated Christian position or social ethic by which we might engage with the political process. So if you want to find out a bit about the abortion laws for New South Wales, here's an easy way to do it. You just go to the Family Planning New South Wales website and they just have a simple fact sheet outlining the current legislation and its interpretation. Well, the third reason we need to talk about abortion is because it affects so many people. You might be surprised at this, but accurate figures on abortion in Australia are actually impossible to obtain, not because they're kept secret, just because we don't collect them. The best estimate we can get is either from Medicare or from hospital statistics, plus some accurate data that has been collected in South Australia. So here's some government estimates from government briefing papers about the number of abortions in Australia. In 2002, it's estimated that there were 73,300 abortions in Australia. That's about 200 abortions a day. 
or another way of looking at it, for every 100 births that year, there were 29 abortions. In 2003, different analysts estimated that there were 84,460 abortions in Australia. That's 230 a day. For every 100 births, that's 34 abortions. Now, there doesn't seem to be any real reason to suggest that the rate of abortion will have changed over the last five years, which means that in all likelihood there will be in excess of 200 abortions today in Australia. And again tomorrow, and again the next day, and every day. To try to think about those figures in another way, 40,000 Australians died in World War II. Approximately twice that number of abortions occur every year in Australia. Worldwide, it's estimated that there are more than 42 million induced abortions a year. Now, one person has called it the silent holocaust. Now, right there in those last two comparisons that I've made, I've actually opened myself up to an accusation of bias. Because in comparing the abortion figure with the number of Australians who died in World War II or with the number of Jews who died in the Nazi concentration camps, some would actually say I'm now prejudicing, uh, pre- I'm now prejudiced the issue. That is, it's not a fair comparison, they say, because a fetus or an embryo is not a person and you emote the issue when you make those sort of comparisons. Similarly, the graphic images of aborted fetuses that you can find pretty easily on pro-life websites, those are claimed to be manipulative. Just because something looks human does not mean, so the argument runs, that it is or was a human being and the use of those images actually distorts what's going on. Now that raises a really important question for us today. What status do we give to a human embryo or fetus? Is it a human being in the full sense or is it something different? That's obviously a critical question to answer, although it's not the only important question. So we're going to look at that question in a moment. But just here I want to round out what we've already seen. This whole question of abortion is personally complex and often confronting. It's a massive reality in our society and it's politically a live and debated issue. That's why we as a society need to engage with it. But I want to add one further thing. As a Christian, and as those who may call themselves Christians, some who are here, I think we're further obliged to engage with this issue because in engaging with this issue, we have a gracious and a humble opportunity to bring God's word to bear on an issue that our culture faces in a big way. In fact, to not engage with this issue as a Christian is actually to deprive our wider community of the light of the knowledge of God that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're actually keeping from them God's gracious gift of redemption and grace and new life in Jesus. Okay, so how are we to think about a human embryo or fetus? At what part or what point does a human being's life begin? Well, the first point to reflect upon is to remember from where the human embryo came. Now, I presume you all did sex ed at school, so I'm not going to go through it all. However, let me just remind you that a human embryo comes about because of 
sexual intimacy between a man and a woman. Now that's actually helpful to remember. Why? Because it means that the right context for actually thinking through this issue, as far as the Bible is concerned anyway, is that you've got to be thinking through the issues of sex and therefore, in Bible terms, of marriage and of family. It's interesting that in the creation accounts in Genesis, it's clear that sex is not, first and foremost, about procreation. So in Genesis chapter 2, yes, sex is the means by which we fulfil God's command to fill the earth. That is, it has a procreative function. However, in Genesis chapter 1, before we reach the procreative function, sex has a prior unity function within a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. That is, the two become one flesh, one kin, one family. It's a unity that's not just physical, but emotional and relational. Sex is about intimacy, not merely procreation. And it's an intimacy that binds you together at many, many deep levels. And it's out of that sexual intimacy and lifelong commitment that children are to be born. Now, the reason I go through this is that part of our problem is that we've divorced what God welded together. Namely, the commitment of marriage, sexual intimacy and having a family. We've tried to pull those things apart. We want sex without commitment and we consider it our right to have sex without children. But at that point we are actually trying to separate out what God's deliberately welded together as a package. And whenever you try to rip apart what comes as a package and use the bits that are designed to work together but use them separately, well, that's never going to end well. It always ends up in a bit of a mess. So instead of understanding conception as this astounding growth of a family out of married sexual intimacy, falling pregnant has actually become an unintended byproduct, sort of almost a problem to be sorted in order to keep our sex without strings liberation. But tragically, rather than being our liberation, divorcing what God welded together is actually the cause of much of our pain. So how then are we to think about a human embryo? What does the Bible have to say? The Bible doesn't talk much actually about abortion or about the status of a human embryo or fetus. It has lots to say that's relevant to the issue as hopefully I've even just then in talking about marriage and sex and family sort of indicates. But it doesn't address the matter explicitly very often. However, a good place to start when thinking about the status of a human fetus might be Psalm 139. So if you've got a Bible there, it'd be great to turn that open. Psalm 139. Let me read verses 13 to 16 of Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 13. The psalmist is addressing the Christian God, Yahweh. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. 
two key ideas just there in those few verses. Firstly, creation, and secondly, continuity of identity. So it's clear that God is the creator of human life, albeit through the sexual union of the psalmist's parents. But this life that's created is the creation of God. It's God who knit me together in my mother's womb. That's really significant, right? The embryo, the fetus, is not mere sexual byproduct, but the creation of God. That ought to affect how we approach it, how we treat it. The other notable fact in the psalm is this idea of continuity of identity. Notice the psalmist doesn't become himself at birth. He talks about himself as me, my, I, both in the present, verse 14, and in the womb, verse 13 and verse 15. In fact, even before the womb, in the mind of God, in verse 16. So the point here is that the psalmist understands that it is himself in the womb, not something other than him, not something less than him, though it's not the same as he is now. There's a continuity of identity, both inside and outside the womb. Now, another passage that's worth looking at is Exodus chapter 21. So you might like to turn to that. Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. Exodus 21, verse 22 to 25. I'll read this. Exodus 21, verse 22. When people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined what the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, there's a translation issue here that you need to be aware of. The NRSV, which I just was reading from, says, when people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage, verse 22. Now, miscarriage means a baby is born dead. On that reading, the baby has died, but only a fine is payable. And the following verses are really about, did any harm come to the woman or not? Now, however, miscarriage there may actually be an over-translation. So the TNIV or the New American Standard Version, they both say if the woman gives birth prematurely. Now, that's actually left open the question of what state the baby was born. Similarly, the English Standard Version translates it so that her children come out, again, leaving it open. Or the Holman Standard Reference Version says, so that her children are born prematurely. And the King James Version puts it rather poetically, so that her fruit depart from her. (laughs) Now, the significance of this is that on that reading, the question that the rest of the verses are exploring is, in what condition was the baby born? If there was no further harm, that is, the baby was born prematurely but was okay then there's only a fine. But if it's not born okay, there are more serious penalties, even life for life. So in particular, the penalties there are the same as for adult human beings. That would suggest that the unborn child is to be treated with the same respect and the same standards as for any other human being. Now, as I say, 
That interpretation turns on a debated translation issue. So it would be foolish to take that as decisive. But if that reading of the passage is valid, is correct, then it would reflect a value on the life of the unborn child that is comparable to that of any other human being. There may also be a reflection of this implied continuity in the New Testament. Uh, Luke, writing his account of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke, uses the same word, brephos, of an unborn child in chapter 1, verse 41 and 44 of Luke, same word used as of a newborn baby in chapter 2, verse 12 or verse 16, and same word used again of the little ones who are brought to Jesus in chapter 18, verse 15. Same word used before and after birth, which may then again imply some sense of continuity before and after birth. Now, this idea of continuity of identity, I think, fits with our biological understanding. See, at what point in the reproductive process is a new individual entity formed? You've got a couple of different options at this point. Is it at fertilisation? Is it at implantation, where the fertilised egg embeds into the womb? Is it at viability, the point at which the baby can live outside of the womb, which, because of medical science advances, is getting earlier and earlier? Is it at birth? Or some would even say, is it even later than birth, say when there's a capacity for rational thought? At what point does this entity become a new individual entity? From a biological point of view, individuation, this forming of a distinct biological identity, I think, occurs at fertilisation. From the moment that the sperm penetrates the ovum, the resulting zygote has a complete and distinct genetic code. What's more, a barrier is actually formed at that moment, preventing any other sperm from entering. It seems that a new living entity has been established at that point. And whilst from that moment the new entity is carried in the woman's body, it is genetically distinct from the woman's body. This is not just like another part of the woman's body, like a fingernail, it is an individually distinct, genetically, being, entity. Yes, it's entirely dependent upon the woman at that point, but it is not thereby subsumed into the woman's identity. So in light of this sort of genetic distinction and the biblical idea of continuity of identity, it seems that the most helpful way of thinking about the fertilised egg or the embryo or the fetus is as, and I'm choosing these words carefully, an emerging human being. An emerging human being. I don't want to say a potential human being because I think that suggests that what is in utero is not yet human. But we call it a human embryo. It is an embryonic human being, an emerging human being. Not a mature human being like you or me, not even a fully formed human being like a newborn baby. It's emerging. But also it's not something that's somehow less than human or something other than human. It is an emerging human being. Therefore, I think it's to be treated with respect and care and love that befits an emerging human being. So where does this take us? Well, I think this sort of biblical theological reflection moves us from a Christian point of view, to oppose abortion. And it actually sees abortion as the taking of an emerging human being's life. 
Now, this what I'm about to say now is not decisive in this argument, but I think that actually having that view fits with many women's experience of the grief and the sadness that comes often after an abortion or even after a miscarriage where the fetus has died without any external intervention. That is, there's been a genuine loss of life here. It was not a nothing. That was an emerging human being that for whatever reason is now no longer with us. Now this stance where the emerging human being exists from fertilisation, this has big implications actually for contraception as well, not just abortion. Quite a few contraceptives work or at least appear to work by preventing implantation of the fertilised egg. They don't prevent fertilisation, they just prevent the fertilised egg from implanting in the womb. Similarly, the morning after pill is commonly used by many after unprotected sex as a safety net to prevent pregnancy. But what the morning after pill does is prevent implantation in the womb. It doesn't prevent fertilisation. There may well have been a new emerging human being formed, but it is ejected. It's worth checking out how your contraception works. Well, some further implications. Taking this stand raises some other issues for us. I read a quote last week from a pro-choice advocate saying that the pro-life movement is actually not about defending right to life, but what the pro-life movement is actually about is about enslaving any woman who conceives to motherhood enslaving any woman who conceives to motherhood. Now, if the biblical position is to oppose abortion, how are we going to respond to the reality that motherhood, in all sorts of ways, is a difficult road? Or Dr Sally Cockburn, aka Dr Feelgood, on her website says this, changing the law will not stop women seeking abortions, it will only make it unsafe for them to do so. See, it's not enough to oppose abortion. We need to address the question of why women in our society feel compelled to seek an abortion. We need to address that issue as well. So I've got five brief observations. First of all, there's a wide issue here of supporting those who have unexpected pregnancies. In New South Wales, a doctor can give a go-ahead for an abortion, and I think this is illuminative. It helps us understand what's going on. A doctor can give a go-ahead for abortion in our state if the doctor believes on reasonable grounds that actually an abortion is necessary here to avoid either serious danger to the woman's life or danger to her physical or mental health taking into account economic and social factors as well as medical ones. You see 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 what's going on there? What we need to address is that there are mental and physical health issues to do with carrying a pregnancy, to do with raising a child. And we need to address that and acknowledge that and do something about that. Further on this, I think, secondly, we need to address what I've called the shameful pregnancy, the pregnancy that is full of shame. So often there's a sense of shame that comes to being pregnant, particularly those of a particularly 
a particular, say, cultural or religious background, including Christians. Here's a not uncommon scenario, right? A couple who, for whatever reason, ought not to be having sex, they sleep together. But they didn't use contraception, of course, because, hey, they ought not to be having sex, so they didn't think about that. They fall pregnant and then there is, they're just terribly ashamed. Not so much actually about being pregnant, but because they've slept together and the pregnancy is going to reveal that to everybody. So they have an abortion in order to cover up the shame of sleeping together. And I say, I, that's just not a really helpful solution. It's actually better to be straightforward and honest and enlist the help of your community, at the very least the Christian community, to move forward in a God-honouring fashion rather than try to make the problem go away. Because you know what? It doesn't actually go away. It just makes more problems. A big part of the issue here is how the Christian community actually deals with unexpected pregnancies. Because you know what? It's the Christians who create the shame culture which drives then Christian people to have abortions. We need to create a community that bears each other's burdens, as the New Testament says, that helps carry the consequences of one another's failings in love. Third, third point, we need to support those who have difficult pregnancies. I'm talking about here pregnancies that come when a person is a victim of some other evil or wrongdoing. It could be rape or it could be incest or maybe desertion. Or maybe when abnormalities are found in the emerging human being, ranging you know, from Down syndrome on one end through to very extreme conditions. Some of my friends have had where the emerging human being, it's been diagnosed that for whatever reason they will not live beyond birth. Maybe their, their lungs are not developed or their brain is not developed and they will continue to live whilst in the womb but will live for only a number of hours once born. See, these are extremely difficult situations to bear on one's own. And to ask women to carry these babies through to term and potentially onward through life, that is a big ask. And we dare not actually ask that unless we personally are willing to get involved and create the supportive community that will make it possible. It's too easy to pronounce what ought to happen. But actually what's really required is that we love in truth and action, as 1 John 3 tells us. Fourth point. A big part of the problem here is men. Men who have sex outside of marriage, trying to divorce what God has welded together, Men who don't take responsibility for contraception but leave that up to the women all the time. Men who don't support women through pregnancy and the raising of children. Men who don't get how difficult it is for women. Men who don't help women feel that raising of children is actually valuable, incredibly valuable. Men who don't sacrifice their own desires or career advancement for the sake of this unborn child that they've actually helped create. See, we can advocate that the government ought to provide more services to help women carry their children, but at the end of the day, the most important support structure is not the state. It's not even the local community or the church or the woman's family 
It's the man who helped create this new life. Although sometimes the man's never told, that's not going to help the situation since that means that the man is not even given the option of supporting the woman and the life that they've helped create together. But men need to take responsibility for this life that they've helped create and men need to step up. Men need to actually say to the woman with whom they've created this life, we can do this, you and I together, with God's help. Well, my final point is that this affects, and this, this final point affects women and men in equal measure. It's the issue that underlies many of the abortions in our culture. It's the issue of selfishness. See, to carry a child and raise it, man, that requires sacrifice. There is no avoiding that. But what's at stake so often is that our own desires and goals and the, our own vision of our life, that is what gets in the way. That, but you know what love entails? Love entails sacrifice. That's what it takes to carry a child, let alone raise it to adulthood. Loving sacrifice. But, but may I say, in that sacrifice, there is an enormous amount of joy and privilege. The children really are a blessing from the Lord, even when they come in the most unexpected and unintended circumstances. But we need to be honest with ourselves. Why are we choosing to abort this emerging human being? Is it because of selfishness? Is it because it just doesn't fit in with my life plan? Is it because I want to save face and avoid the shame? You know, that's not the way of love. That's not putting first this emerging human being that you've helped make, that God has created within you. You know, if what they say is correct, then up to one woman in three in Australia has or will have an abortion. That means it's impossible to talk about this topic without people feeling a lot of unease, a lot of personal guilt and often significant shame. So if we're going to try and give a Christian perspective on abortion in light of the massive reality that it is and the personal difficulties it creates, we have to say this loud and clear. Remember, you can never fall too far. You are never beyond the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God. God has, whatever you have done, whatever has happened in your past, God has already, in Jesus Christ, borne your guilt and shame and paid the penalty to secure forgiveness and new life for you. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. We often feel that our failings, our sin will stain us forever that there's no washing that can truly make me clean again. You know, that's just not true. It's just not true. There is real cleansing from God. Isaiah 1 verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. That's the Christian good news. The triumph of God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and the cleansing power of his work in our life. You know, that's what we all need and that's what we're all offered in Jesus.